Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Unearthing Agriculture, where each week I will meet with food industry professionals to unearth the truth about our food system so that you can feel confident navigating the grocery store. My name is Bonnie Witt, and I am your host. This week, we are covering the second part of the beef industry, where we are going to dive in and talk all about finishing beef, grass-fed versus grain-fed beef, beef processing, and a little bit about beef in the grocery stores. For those that are listening, I want you to think about how many pounds you think the average American eats of beef per year. If you guessed 56 pounds, then you would be correct. According to the United States Department of Agriculture, the average American eats 56 pounds of beef per year. Now, personally, I don't think that I eat that much beef per year, but if that weight was for chicken strips, then absolutely. But it is very interesting to think about what we consume as individuals each year and how our food system in America can adjust to fit our needs as consumers. Now, let's unearth agriculture. Joining us on today's episode, we have Dr. Stacy Zelli. Dr. Zelli is a clinical assistant professor with a focus on meat science in the animal sciences department here at Purdue University. Dr. Zelli received her bachelor's degree from Michigan State University, where she then went on to continue her education with a master's degree from the University of Kentucky and a PhD from the University of Illinois. Dr. Zelli teaches multiple classes here at Purdue University, ranging from animal products to meat science and meat products. Welcome, Dr. Zelli. Well, thank you for having me. This is exciting. For those of you that don't know, I have known Dr. Zelly for a few years now as mm-hmm. I have taken both ANSI 255, which is Principles of Animal Products, as well as ANSI 351, which is Meat Science with Dr. Zelly. And actually, I'm going on a study abroad with Dr. Zelly this summer <laughs> to Germany. Just can't get enough. Yeah. You got to take 360 in the fall and then you'll have just the full gambit of my classes yeah. and we'll yeah. call it good. Yeah, fair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So as we get started here, the first thing that I wanted to talk about is a little bit about finishing in beef cattle. Sure. Can you start by explaining a little bit about what finishing is? Sure. So on the live side, we would call it finishing. On the meat side, we just call it fat. <laughs> we like to simplify things on that in that, in that regard. Um, but so essentially, you know, as an animal gets older, they're going to start depositing more fat, right? As they, their body basically comes to a point where it's matured in its muscle development, and then the body just starts developing fat on top of that. And it's a tricky thing, honestly, when it comes to beef, because there's different fat depots. Okay. So there's the fat that's around the organs that remains pretty consistent. Then we have the fat that's underneath the skin, we'd call subcutaneous fat, or you may have heard people call that back fat. That's a common term. And then we have the fat that's kind of in between the muscles that we don't really mess with that much. But then we have the the stuff that's called marbling that is inside the muscle, right? And that's the stuff that we like. So we like marbling because that's that fat that's going to be in that steak or in that roast so that when we go to cook it, it's going to melt. It's going to give us great flavor and juiciness and things like that. But the subcutaneous fat and even the seam fat, too, is the fat that's kind of the wasteful stuff. It's the stuff that you do, you know, that that thick layer of fat that's on the outside of a steak or roast that we usually have to trim down to a a uniform thickness anyway. So it's one of those we want one and not the other. And, And you can do that over, you know, we have any more we've got great technologies that we've done to select for genetics that will deposit more marbling and less subcutaneous fat. But unfortunately, when we don't know anything about an animal, when we're just looking at it, maybe in a, in a pen full of hundreds, all we have to go off is what we can see from the outside, right? So that, that subcutaneous fat, there's some markers. You, I mean, there's some places on, a, on an animal where you can see it. And so it's our best thing that we can see, measurement we can see on a live animal. Unfortunately, it actually doesn't have the greatest relationship to marbling, but it's at least an indicator, right? If one is fatter, it should have more marbling as well. Uh, so if it has more subcutaneous fat, like I said, you can see on the skin. So we call that finish. So again, when we think about raising beef, we want to raise them to the point where they finish. Again, not really because we want that subcutaneous fat that we're seeing on the outside, but because we're hoping that means we have more marbling on the inside. So that's why we would talk about finishing cattle. If we ever uh, don't let them finish, uh, the likelihood of having marbling decreases some, right? And so that's really why, again, in the, the world of beef, we care a bit more about fat because we really care about that marbling that's on the inside. And then for those that are tuning in from last week's episode or maybe missed last week's episode, finishing is that last stage mm-hmm. in the beef life cycle before they go into processing. Yeah. And so that's where we're kicking up, you know, a little bit more the the, the, the feeding. They're getting a little more rich feed, if you want to think about it that way. Uh, that's, again, trying to hopefully metabolize them to, again, put on a little bit more fat there towards the end. Yeah. And then I want to go back to the marbling a little sure. bit. Why would a consumer care about marbling? About sure, that? sure. So that, so marbling, again, that's that that's the little flecks of fat that are inside the muscle. So no matter how good you are, you're not cutting that off, right? Um, and that's good. So the marbling that's there, why we like that is when we go to cook it, it's going to melt. So that helps with juiciness. It also is going to impart quite a bit of flavor as well. Even the best chefs say that flavor is spelled F-A-T. 
So that's really why that marbling is so important to us in the beef industry. When you hear about beef grades, if you've heard of like prime or choice or select, what those are evaluating are two things. The maturity of the animal, which again, sometimes that meant most of the time we only really grade younger animals anyway, but really it's the marbling. That's truly what the, the main kind of determinant of those grades are. And so when you hear something being like USDA prime, that means it has more marbling in it. Choice is a little less, select is even less than that. If there's no grade that's been identified, it doesn't mean that there's no marbling. It just means that the plant didn't pay for a person to evaluate the marbling. That's all that means. But again, prime choice and select, they don't guarantee a better eating experience, but your likelihood of a better eating experience is significantly higher the more marbling you have there. Um, and that we just have a copious amounts of data that show that, again, you can still have a crummy prime steak. It's possible. But um, the likelihood of your steak being crummy reduces a lot the more you increase that grade. For those that maybe don't go to the grocery store very often, mm-hmm. if you look at a steak, then marbling would be the little white flecks yep. uh, in your steak. That's like snow. It's fat. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And then, so I want to talk a little bit about real quick, what are the different types of finishing for beef cattle? Okay, so broad strokes here, right? You've got your grain finishing and then you've got kind of the grass finishing, which has become, um, I'm not going to say more popular, but I, I guess you're just seeing more people that are interested, I think, on that grass feeding side of things. The vast majority of the cattle here in the U.S. are going to be finished on, on grain um, just because it has a higher energy content, higher protein content. And again, you can basically get them to start putting on more finish in a more effective manner. Not to say that you can't finish cattle on grass. You can. When you actually think about kind of life cycle of cattle, they're born on grass usually. Um, They're raised on there for quite some time. They really only go into that kind of feedlot where they're just getting um, what we call a total mixed ration, right? Think about it as like a really good protein shake where it's got everything in there. (laughs) You know, it's got all their grain, all their roughages and all that jazz is all mixed in there. And they're really only in that phase for the last couple months, to be honest with you. And so six plus months or six le- or six or less, roughly. And so you can finish cattle on just pasture. There's some people that like that. And there's people that like the grass fed. It does have a different flavor to it. In general, when they're grass finished, because I'm not saying it's not a good diet, it's just not as rich, right? And so their, their body won't fatten quite the same. So grass fed 99% of the time, every time I've seen it really, it'll have a lot less fat. And now there might, there's some people that are, as I've been talking about fat, are like, I don't want that. That, you know, that sounds terrible. And that's fine. Um, you know, there's some people that really don't care for fat or for very, health reasons or trying to reduce it, whatever it may be. So maybe having something like grass fed would probably be more ideal because again, it's going to overall have less fat. It's just a less concentrated diet really. And so even though we call them, I'm using air quotes now, grass finished. Um, if they're truly grass finished, they were just fed grass. I'm using again, air quotes. They're finished because they're old enough to be done, but they're not really finished because they're really not as fat is what something that's grain fed generally. Not always, but again, I'd say generally. But there's some people that really like that. The flavor that you do have there is going to be slightly different because they're on grass, they have a little bit different flavor compounds. Okay. Cause they're on grass is what, because you have less fat or you're lying on flavor compounds that are more in the lean than they are in the fat. Cause like grain fed has more fat in it. Okay. Let's just, <laughs> <laughs> if it sounds like I'm talking in circles. Let's, let's simplify this. Grain has more fat. Grass has less. Um, and so when you think about where you're getting all your flavor from in a grain, it's coming from fat and from the protein source. When you think about it in a grass fed, you're getting it from more from the lean and yes, some from the fat and the fat has a more intense flavor because of some of the flavor compounds that are there just because of their diet. And so again, it's it's a personal preference. I always like to say that this is one of those situations where I'm not saying one is good or bad. They're just different from each other. And so depending on what a consumer is interested in, some people are really passionate about making sure that they were only raised on grass and things like that. Some people are like, I don't care as long as it's delicious. It's, you know, everyone's personal preference. Yeah. So then somebody who has eaten regular beef that they get from the grocery store, not grass finished, and they decide that they want to try grass finished for the first time, what flavor can they expect and prepare themselves for? Um, overall, it's going to have a less richness to it because, again, it doesn't have as much fat to it. In really severe cases, I don't see this as, I don't think you get this as much in beef as like you do in lamb, for example. True grass fed can be a little bit more gamey in flavor. Again, that's her personal preference. I don't, you don't see that as much in beef, I think, as in lamb. In lamb, I've noticed that when when it's a a grass fed lamb, uh, which a lot of imported lamb is, it tends to get a kind of a slightly gamey flavor to it. Overall, it has to me a little bit less of a flavor. It also will get a little bit more metallic flavor as well, because again, you just have a higher protein content. And they just don't have as much fat to give it kind of that mellow, buttery richness. Like when you think about animal fat or like meat or things like that, it's like a buttery flavor. And you're definitely reducing that when you are going to a a grass fed. So again, I've had people that are like, oh my gosh, it tastes amazing. I've had other people like, I will never try that again. It's very much a personal preference. And so much about eating experiences. I think I told you this probably in class quite a bit where it's like we eat with our heart and our eyes a lot, right? Mm -hmm. It's things that, that, that really strike a chord with us will make something amazing to us 
us. Our brain says it's amazing before it even gets close to our palate. And so again, that's one where I'm not poo-pooing. I'm people that like one or the other, but when somebody particularly I've had some folks that'll be like, oh no, there's no reason grass-fed is always the best and then you can't convince me otherwise. Not that I'm ever trying to convince someone. As a scientist, I'm like, okay, sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue with you because I can tell that they're very passionate about it and things like that. So I, I would expect a different eating experience. I wouldn't try to tell somebody, oh, you're not going to like that or you are because it's very much a personal preference in my yeah. opinion. Now, for a few minutes, I want to focus on just a grain finished beef process. Can you tell us a little bit about what it looks like from, I guess, the industry side when a cattle goes into a, a feedlot? Like, mm-hmm. Can you explain a little bit about what a feedlot is and a little bit about what that looks like? Sure. So, okay. So when we move into a feedlot situation, so generally a feedlot, it's a confined Pen, and I, that sounds bad. As soon as you say her word confined, yeah. you're like, oh, what? In that it's not a pasture. Um, they're generally like a dirt lot of some sort or something like that. But they are outdoors. I mean, I think I've only ever seen like one feedlot that was an indoor. And it wasn't even indoor. It just had a roof on it. Uh, it was very open on the side. So what that does is it allows us to, again, have a little bit better handle on what they're t- eating. Right. When they're on and when you're in a pasture, you don't know how much they're actually you know picking up each day and such. And so that feedlot, they tend to be pens that are larger, dirt lots. They generally have some kind of trenching to them so that you can always have that nice drainage because animals make waste. And so we want, you know, uh, things like that. And then you usually have a very large bunk that'll go along one side of the pen. And so what you do, again, depending on the feedlot, they'll mix up what they call a total mix ration. So that has, again, their roughages and things like that there, whether they're using silage or chopped hay or whatever it may be, and whatever grains and minerals and things like that. And so then they're able to put that in that bunk. And so that's really feed that's there all day that they can come over, eat as much as they like and walk away. Until, and so then until they get fed again later on that day. And so, yeah, so a lot of your large feedlots, again, are going to be there. It's very outdoors or, you know, very much um, available to the elements, if you will. And so they'll stay there until they finish. And so, again, this is where a good feedlot, when they bring in cattle, they will sort them. And you can kind of tell uh, what we call phenotypically. That's just basically a very fancy way of saying a visual evaluation of like, okay, this one looks like it's one that's going to be maybe a little later maturing. So basically that one might need a little bit more time on feed. And so a good feedlot will really sort cattle into various pens so that they're in, with like body types so that they, that whole pen can get shipped at one time rather than trying. You would never in a feedlot, they would try not, never to pick and choose in a single pen. It's like, no, 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 no. Even if a couple of men aren't, aren't finished, everybody from this pen is going at the same time. Again, it varies a little bit by the kind of the, the breed type and whatnot. But uh, for the most part, your your cattle are going to be finished going at least to market right around that 13 to 1400 pounds. It's a little bit more than, I mean, we've gone up in weight, but we've gotten to the point now where we can have cattle that are a little bit bigger, but they're not hog fat. They're like, you know, they're bigger. They're finishing a little bit nicer. So when I was a kid, so about 20 years ago when I was showing cattle, like 1200 was, that was your ideal mark 12 1250 you were right on now we've, we've moved that needle a little bit it's more like 13 to 1400 pounds it's usually what they're going to market live weight yeah and then one thing i would like to point out is how much of a trained eye it takes for somebody to see this maybe somebody in the industry <laughs> yeah. can figure out yeah. on the body condition score where they need to go and how lo- how much longer they have on the finishing yeah. cycle but if you're somebody that just sees cows when you're driving across by the road if, if there's that, a black one there's a white one yeah, yeah mm-hmm. it, it'll be a little harder to figure it out. So this is definitely yep. something that takes some experience. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you took look at any of your like large plants where they send somebody out to different feedlots to be like, Oh, you know, we need X amount of loads of, you know, fat cattle or lean cattle or whatever they're looking for. And um, yeah, those visual evaluators are, are quite good. They can walk through a pen and say, yeah, this pen's probably about 60% choice. You know, I mean, the really good one, the really good ones know exactly what they're doing and really, yeah, it comes with experience. Yeah. So if a steer is grain finished, does that mean that it's been fed grain its whole life or just this last finishing part? Really, that's just referring to the finishing portion. Mm -hmm. I mean, so in a normal or I should say ideals, whatever, maybe not ideal, whatever, a <laughs> common way. There we go. A common <laughs> method is generally when those, those calves are born, they stay with mom. They may or may not start getting what we call creep feed, where basically that's feed that the calf can get to that mom can't get to. And then when we wean those calves off is when we'll start moving them on to richer diet. So some grain and still pasture at the same time. So then the calf will usually at the weaning then will go to what we call a backgrounder, sometimes a stocker. Some people delineate between the two. To me, they sound kind of similar. And so that's 
that's where they'll still be going. Generally, they're still in kind of outdoor setting where they're grass, you know, they're being pasture fed, but then grain as well. And it's really for that last phase um, when they get to about no 900 pounds or something like that, eight, 900 pounds that they'll go and get those last several hundred pounds in a feedlot. So um, when you hear grain finished, that's really referring to the end of their life. A lot of their life they spend honestly out in the pasture. And that's where uh, a lot of those operations, the very large ones are going to be out west because that's where we've got grasslands and rangelands that really fit that ideally. And so it's funny, I was at South Dakota State prior to being here and uh, the Missouri River cuts that state in half. And when you move on the west side, it's all range and rolling land. If you're on the east side, it's very similar to here or Iowa or something like that. Row crops and feedlots. So it's like you had two different types of cattle producers in the state. Very different. You know, you had your cow-calf folks who are out west and you had your feedlot people who are uh, on the east side where the row crops and stuff are at. And so it's like, yes, you have cattle people, but very different operations depending on where you're at. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And then, so that differs from our grass-fed beef, where they are only fed grass their entire life. Yes, that, the, I say that because um, the grass-fed claim has had a wide interpretation, and I'm not throwing anybody under the bus here, yeah. mind you, but but I do know that it's a pretty broad spectrum. And so, I mean, it, for the first, it came out and you would just see grass-fed, okay? Then you would start seeing like grass finished. And so that meant that those probably were actually on grass their whole life. Now notice neither of those actually say they never got grain. Mm-hmm. Now the implication is that they didn't. Um, and so I do know that for a while there, the USDA was kind of regulating. The last I heard, and so I could, don't quote me on this one. Nobody yeah. come after my, and me personally on this one. But the last I remember reading is basically the USDA had kind of washed its hands of that label mm-hmm. because they're like, there's so many ways you can interpret it. Technically to my, okay, I'm not a plant person, but technically I think corn is technically a grass. Yeah. So it's like you could actually feed them corn and you were grass feeding them. Yeah. But were you really? So. I think from my observation and that take it for what that for what it's worth um, that some of the I don't want to say call them charlatans, but the people that were trying to basically trick the system have, have slipped off. And, and really, I think most of the time when you see a lot of that grass fed that it, it truly was likely grass fed. But it doesn't mean that they didn't get some kind of supplementation in there. So that's where if it's something that you're really passionate about, I just recommend that you focus on smaller producers and things like that. Then you don't have to worry about if it's something again that's and there's some people that take that very personally. They're like, no, I just want animals that were raised on grass because I feel that's important. And again, no judgment. Totally mm-hmm. fine. Focus on finding a small producer or that, that, that will guarantee that for you. Mm-hmm. I, that's truly how I feel. Not to take away from your, your big retail settings and stuff like that. There just can be a lot more room for interpretation there, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. We see quite a few videos on social media about feedlots that have dusty lots and quite a few steers in them, which we talked about mm-hmm. earlier mm-hmm. when we described what a feedlot looks like. They receive a lot of attention on social media for maybe being a little bit inhumane because to somebody that doesn't understand the beef industry, it's a, quite a few cows in a confined area. I mean, mm-hmm. I say confined, but it's actually quite large. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that's always the deceiving part. I mean, they're yeah. not in there shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. They're yeah. There are regulations on how many you can have in each each pen and things like that. And, and I, I'm not poo-pooing because mm-hmm. I'm sure to, yes, to the untrained eye, some of those things can look um, off-putting for sure. But I will say this. We always have to remember, first of all, the agriculture industry within the United States is, is not perfect, but pretty darn advanced when it comes to, we, we've done a lot of different things. I mean, we're in a country that luckily invested in agriculture very early on. Obviously, we're literally sitting yeah. in an example of that as we sit in a land-grant institution, right? And so with that, I say we have made a lot of decisions based on data, right? And so why I say that is because if an animal is uncomfortable, if their welfare is not ideal, if they're in a situation where they're not um, being cared for, they will not perform. They will not grow. They will not eat. They will be um, a very, very inefficient growing animal, right? Um, So why I say that is that basically the things that we do, everything that we do in so many ways, and I'm not saying, by the way, there aren't some people that do bad things because that's, I don't care what industry you're in, that's going to happen no matter By and large, when we kind of look at the things that we do in in the industry, the vast majority of it does focus on the efficiency of our animals. And to get efficient animals, you have to treat them right. That's all there is to it. And um, I mean, that's that's truly what it is. And so even though, again, at a novice glance, you can say that looks like a lot of cows for one pen. What a lot of times people don't realize is they tend to lump together, right? So it's like, yeah, yeah, there's a lot on one end of the pen, but there's nobody on the other end. They could spread out if they wanted to. They like kind of being close sometimes. And also, you know, by having them in pens like that, we can monitor them more easily. 
we can identify a sick animal in a pen a lot easier than we can in a two acre pasture. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of things that go into those decision makings, not just because we're trying to be this cruel person that wants to get these animals pumped full, blah, 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 to get them to market as fast as possible. Truly the best and most successful livestock producers are stewards. We are stewards of those livestock and we are trying to, to be the best stewards we can to help those animals grow as efficiently as possible. And I think that's sometimes a difficult one for people to wrap their head around. They're like, so you're a good steward and then you kill them. <laughs> I know that sounds really harsh, but it's like, well, yeah, we still have a belief system in, in this cycle of life of things. But at the end of the day, I mean, we in agriculture do a lot of crazy things. I can't even tell you. I just recently sat in a pen with a ewe for an hour waiting her, for her, you know, in the middle of the cold, just waiting for her to have for lamb and, and make sure she was OK. Did I need to do that? I didn't have to. But I'm like, but I wanted to make sure my ewe was OK and make sure her baby was OK. And so we do a lot of things, I think, in agriculture that may seem like we don't care. We're being callous about how we house them or how they, and it's, it's far from the truth. In reality, we're trying, we're doing those decisions or putting them in a confinement situation or, or placing them in a pen where we can improve their nutrition because we're truly trying to be stewards that'll help them grow um, again in a more efficient manner. So does that make sense? I think, yeah. I don't know if I, yeah, I got real philosophical on that <laughs> one, but I'm not sure how, okay. But anyhow, so yeah, but I still stand behind that. Yeah. And then for those that may be listening, we talk about efficiency a lot in the mm-hmm. agriculture industry because we have to keep in mind that it's it's very obvious for us to see when we live in rural areas, yeah. those of us that are in the agriculture industry, but maybe not so much if you live in an urban area, that we are continuing to have to increase our efficiency to grow more and more food products mm-hmm. for the people because of growing populations and we have less and less land to do it on. As oh, nowadays. less and less everything. I mean, less and less resources and things like that. I mean, you take a resource that we take for granted until we go to the gas pump. But I mean, think about the price of gas and right. And so it's like, okay, now the price of gas went up. Price of diesel goes up. My feed went up. Mm-hmm. I'm not getting any, you know, my, my cows are still going to give me just as much meat as they were before the price of feed went up. But now I have to encounter. There's just so many things I think that go into it. And it's, it's really easy, I think, to say, oh, well, I'll just, you know, how hard can it be to raise some cows? Honestly, I deal with that on the meat side because... Now I'm going to throw the livestock people under the bus for a moment. I grew up not knowing anything about meat science. I grew up knowing that I could just, would just drop our animals off at the local locker, come back a couple weeks later, they're in little white packages and call it good. And it wasn't until I went to college that I realized, oh my goodness, there is so much science and work that goes on from when I drop that animal off to what I get in a package. And there was so much science before I even dropped the animal off. And so I still have livestock producers that are like, oh, I'll just start harvesting my own stuff. I'll just start cutting stuff up. And I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> a lot of times I'm like, have you tried that? They're like, oh, I'll figure it out. I'm like, OK, best of luck to you on that one. And so I think that's true across all aspects of agriculture. It's really easy to always, you know, throw stones uh, and say, how hard can it be? I mean, come on. And until you really see, oh, my goodness gracious, there's a lot of work. And so, yeah, efficiency is always the name of the game because we're always trying to get more with less. Right. And, um, and quite frankly, that's one where if we can have more efficient animals, then we don't have to harvest as many. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's that's if I can get more product out of them and, and, and things like that, then I don't have to harvest as many. And then that's a good thing because it's less that we actually have to kill and things like that. So, um, yeah. So I know efficiency can sometimes seem like we're cutting corners or things like that. Or again, I think sometimes we uh, the, the the perception is that in order to get efficiencies, we've given up on humanity. We've given up on our humility or uh, our, our welfare, our, our care of animals, our husbandry, if you will. And, and that's far from the truth, right? We have to have those two things work in concert or they, it, it just won't work. You won't get the efficiencies if you don't have the husbandry to go with it. Mm-hmm. So I think for those listening, that's something to keep in mind too mm. for all of these episodes and not just for this episode. So now I want to talk a little bit about beef processing, sure. uh, but we're going to have a whole episode on this later. So I'm Oh, gonna, are you? Yeah. Oh, goodness. Who are you pulling in for that? I was hoping you. <laughs> okay, okay. It's fair just enough. not for a few weeks. <laughs> I was like, wait, who else on, on campus? Okay, fair enough. Sorry. Yeah, so Dr. Zilly may be a repeat. Okay, okay. Anyways, I want to kind of skip ahead. Sure. Uh, so at this point, we're talking about the cattle that's hanging on the rails. It's, right. it's dead. It's, it's a carcass. <laughs> yes, it's, it's no a carcass. Cattle. It's yes, carcass. Yep. It's a carcass. <laughs> and so I want to talk about a little bit about disinfecting because I see some things on social media about what disinfectant we use and oh, okay. uh, things like that. So I want to talk about why we disinfect, why we rinse uh, oh, first. Sure. 
Um, okay, so first of all, when you think about what cattle look like when they come in, they don't take a bath or a shower before they come in to get harvested, right? So uh, for the most part, particularly this time of year, of course, they generally have more hair this time of year when we're in colder climates. Um, and that hair is just a magnet for manure and things like that. Just things that are benign to them right now on the outside, but things that you don't want to eat. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you have all kinds of manure and vegetation and things like that that'll be on that hide. And so even though we do our darndest to try and get that hide off as clean as possible. And so if a piece of fecal material from the hide or something like that was to flake off onto the carcass. You don't get to wash it off or pick it off. You have to cut it off. And so um, there are, in larger plants, they'll use like a little steam vacuum because that's obviously using heat um, to like vacuum up and steam or sterilize that area as well. Um, and so that's the thing that we are always worried about having that kind of contamination. So anything from the hair, anything, any kind of fecal material, things like that. Um, and so that's why the last phase of any carcass harvesting uh, facility will do some kind of wash. And so there's a couple different ones we'll use. So using 180 degree water, is a perfectly acceptable way. 180 degree water will instantaneously kill uh, pathogenic bacteria. So it really, you know, again, kind of creates a very, I don't want to say sterile, that's not accurate, but it definitely becomes a very, very clean surface. Um, Another one that you can use in conjunction or as an alternative would be some organic acids. And so like citric acid, lactic acid, or acetic acid. And now the first thing people are like, oh, you're going to put acid on my carcass. Um, Acetic acid is vinegar, folks. (laughs) Citric acid is uh, is the, the, the granulated stuff that's on the top of Sour Patch Kids, for Pete's sake. And so what those are just organic acids that you see. That again, lactic acid you have moving throughout your entire body right now. Um, and so those are just, again, organic acids that reduce the pH, that create, you know, more acidic surface on the on the surface of a carcass. And therefore, again, can either kill or drastically inhibit any microbial uh, organisms that are there. So they won't grow. They either die or they, you know, are in an environment that they're not going to grow very well at all. And so to say disinfectant, that's not really a great, yeah. <laughs> it's not really accurate. What it is, there's some commercial products that are a combination of those that are a combination of like lactic and acetic acid or something like that. And so that's why they have names, um, you know, that are like brand names and stuff like that. But it's not really a disinfectant. Yeah. Like I said, it's it's a um, it's an antimicrobial. Those, those are, so we have to do that. And we are by law, every beef processing facility has to have some kind of antimicrobial intervention when they leave a kill floor. Uh, so so basically, as that carcass is getting wheeled into a cooler to, to chill, and then like I said, it, the, basically the last time somebody's touched it is to clean it if you think about it that way. So it sounds bad. People are like, oh my gosh, what do you do? What do you, you know, you're spraying ammonia or whatever on the carcass. No, it's just, honestly, again, it's stuff that's in your pantry for Pete's sake. Yeah. So that you let your kids eat, right? (laughs) Some of my kids love Sour Patch Kids, so. So then after they receive this antimicrobial wash, Mm -hmm. what happens directly after that? So they'll go into a cooler. And so um, depending on the species depends on how long it takes for the muscle to actually go into what we call rigor. When you think about muscle, um, it doesn't Im- immediately come, become stiff, right? And so once it becomes stiff is when we can go ahead and cut it and make it into steaks and things like that. Prior to that, you really don't want to cut it um, because muscle tissues are kind of like accordions, right? And when they're on a carcass, the bones are really causing a tension to pull those muscle fibers. If you cut them off before they've gone into what we call rigor, where they won't, where they won't they won't scrunch up or extend at all, right? They're stuck. If you cut it before that goes into what, into rigor, the whole muscle structure will scrunch up and you get a really tough product. Now, I'm sure if you had some hunters that are listening right now, they're like, that's not true. I cut stuff off when I feel dressed this, that, and the other. And I can promise you, you have made your product tougher. <laughs> feel dressed out there uh, in the field or something like that before and went into rigor. I promise you made it tough. Now, I'm not telling you your, your deer's bad. I'm just telling you that, it's, that that's the case. So, in beef, we want to give them enough time for, again, those muscles to go into rigor. So again, we usually won't touch them then for about 24 hours. 24 to 36 hours is a pretty common time for carcasses to be in a cooler, cold refrigerated temperatures, usually with a lot of wind velocity, because again, they're, you know, several hundred pounds. I mean, a side of beef is, again, varying on the the, the size, um, but a pretty safe bet is between three to, or I'm sorry, about, uh, yeah, about three and a half to um, four and a half hundred pounds, right? So you want to get that, and it's all body temp. It's all (laughs) warm. Uh, So you need to get that chilled down. So again, usually we've got a lot of wind speed and stuff going in that cooler, and we're uh, letting them stay in that refrigerated temperatures for about 24 to 36 hours. Okay, and then what happens directly after that? Sure. So then, okay, so in a large facility, uh, they will usually go through a, a fabrication floor. So that one's always funny to me, the word fabrication. To me, I just say it now interchangeably, but fabrication in carpentry means you're building something fabrication in meat means you're breaking it apart <laughs> so we're, we're opposite 
So uh, then we'll go into, like I said, we'll fab it out. And so we'll actually make it into the various cuts. And so uh, your large facilities are very automated in that they're moving the product around automated. As far as who's actually, it's still physical human hands that are cutting it. But for the most part, again, very very automated in that you have conveyors that are bringing pieces and parts by and things like that. So for example, you might have, if, if you're a person that's cutting on the line, um, you might be having this, this conveyor that passes in front of you with, you know, two or three different types of cuts and your job is to trim X, Y, Z off of each cut. Right. And so, so it's very automated in that respect. Very, I should say streamlined. Maybe that's a better way to say streamlined rather than automated. It's probably a better way to put it. And so your large facilities usually will have it into what we call box beef. So that's still some big pieces. If you think about like when you go to like um, any of your big box stores, like a Sam's or Gordon's or something like that, what you're seeing there is probably stuff that would come directly out of one of those plants. Mm-hmm. That That's how it usually will go to, let's say, a Kroger or a Meyer or something like that. Now, some of those larger companies will have then another facility that will actually cut it into steaks and things like that. And so, for example, some of your large grocery stores don't actually have a meat cutter on. You know, they have they have somebody that opens a box that already has packaged steaks. And, uh, and so that that can vary. Who's going to cut it into actual steaks varies a little bit by the company and whatnot. Um, some of them still have meat cutters there then that are basically like getting big chunks out and maybe cutting it into ribeyes or things of that nature. So again, your large facilities basically focus on going from live to carcass and then carcass to what we call box beef, where it's, again, large pieces, but it's the heavy lifting is done, if you want to think about it that way. Now, I want to take a second to talk about aging a little bit. Sure. Can you explain what aging is sure. first? <laughs> sure. So aging has nothing to do with the live age of the animal whatsoever. When you're talking about aging, what we're doing is basically allowing the meat so, um, of that carcass to uh, stay under refrigeration for long periods of time. And the longer you let that happen, the longer you allow a uh, product to age, what you're doing um, from a couple different perspectives. So one is from a tenderness perspective. There's natural little enzymes inside muscle tissue that will be breaking it down over time. And so you're letting that kind of natural process take place and you're allowing it to become more tender. After about 21 days, that starts plateauing. I mean, so like, so you get a huge improvement in tenderness from zero to 21 days. At, from like 21 to 28, you're like, okay, I still get an improvement. After 28, it's it's pretty minimal. But the other thing, so when we think about kind of our three major palatability traits, okay, tenderness, juiciness, and flavor. On the juiciness side, actually, Dr. Kim right here at uh, Purdue University has done some interesting things looking at aging. And what they found is basically because those little muscle proteins are getting broken down, um, it's caught, the, he refers to it as a Swiss cheese effect, where it's actually creating like little pockets where, where moisture can actually retain within the product. So we've actually found product that has been aged for a long period of time tends to be juicier from a sensory perspective. Um, and then the third one that, in my opinion, is probably the most impactful thing when we think about aging, particularly like dry aging, and I'll talk about dry versus white here in just a second, but um, is flavor. And you are allowing some flavor compounds to break down and kind of become more intense and things like that. And so that's when you hear about like those really long ones when they've aged a really long time. They have a little bit more of a, of a, a stronger flavor, um, almost a funky flavor, sometimes very strong, what we call umami, which is savory flavors, which again, to some people, they love it. Some people, they hate it. I, I kind of liken it to that of like blue cheese. Like some people love blue cheese and some people absolutely detest it. So I'm like, yeah. if it's somebody's like, oh, I hate blue cheese. I'm like, do not try dry age stuff. That I don't think will work well for you. Yeah. I could be wrong. I'd fall into that category. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, you probably like a mild dry age. So uh, now I've referred to it a couple of times. So in aging of meat, okay, what we got to remember though is we are losing weight over time, right? Because I mean, water will eventually start kind of leaking out. So that's also why it becomes more expensive the longer you age it, right? Um, because if I'm losing moisture, I'm losing weight, I have to still charge people for that, right? I, I can't. I got to basically increase my price a little bit. The other thing then is there's been a lot of work looking at what we call wet aging. So it's basically doing the same thing, only it's putting it in the meat into a vacuum package bag and letting it sit in refrigeration versus dry aging is you're letting it kind of dehydrate on the outside surface. You're letting the meat just sit in a big refrigerator, right? And there's a lot more data to show that dry aging has a better or more impactful flavor and things like that. Wet aging, like I said, there's a lot of papers that have looked at both of them. They have pluses and minuses. From a palatability, they have a plus and minus. I would say that the, the dry aging tends to, again, have a little bit better flavor, a um, little bit better texture, 
from my experience, what I've had in some of the projects I've done and whatnot, where wet aging is good. I'd say you usually get the tenderness development. You don't get quite the flavor development with wet aging. Um, not the positive flavor development, I'll put it that way. Yeah. Um, when I've had a kind of extended wet aged period of stuff, I'm like, it has a stronger flavor. I'm not going to say it's a better flavor, um, but it has a, you know, it has a bit of a strong flavor. Now, from a meat cutter's perspective, okay, what you got to realize is when you're dry aging, the whole surface of the meat is going to dry out. It's going to look like jerky and you have to cut all of that off. Right. And so if you think about it, your product loss that you have with dry aging is significantly higher. And that's one of those, whenever somebody's telling me they want to start dry aging, I'm like, you need to do a cutting test. Weigh that loin ahead of time, dry age it, weigh it again, good grasp of how much you're going to lose so that you can price it appropriately. Because it's, because again, anytime you're losing weight, you're losing money. Or if another way I like to put it, this is you're concentrating the price, right? As basically as that cut of meat dries out, the meat that you have remaining is now more valuable because you've lost that weight. And so that's where dry aging um, is more expensive. I mean, that's why like if you go to your high end restaurants and stuff, they'll do it. Your really nice market markets and things like that. They'll do it. And that's why it's more expensive. Like there's, it's not just because they're like, ha ha ha, we get to charge more. They've literally lost a lot more product and it's a little more manpower, obviously to trim it off and everything wet. That's where wet aging tends to be again, a little easier because you put it inside a vacuum package bag. So you don't lose any product or you lose very little of that product because it stayed hydrated the whole time. And so again, the wet aging is from a business standpoint, you don't have to charge as much for it. I don't think again, it's just not as impactful from an overall palatability as like a dry aging. A dry aging is really for those meat connoisseurs that are like, can really like that kind of flavor, that funky flavor um, that just has a really, you know, different texture to it as well. Yeah. Just a more higher, you know, higher end product. So, but you lose a lot more product with this. So be, be yeah. ready to pull out the, the credit card for that one. Cause it's going to be a little more expensive. So, so then for us in the Midwest, would you be able to find dry aging meat in the, in a typical store like Sam's club or something, or would you have to go more? Uh, no, dry? you're not usually going to find it in one of those. Um, there's, you know, those, as far as the, the plants that are doing dry aging, it's usually smaller plants or smaller butcher shops, higher end ones. You, I guess I have not seen it in any of your big retail it's usually going to be a smaller retailer. Honestly, a lot of people have gone to doing it themselves, which is totally cool. I'm like, if you got room in your fridge or you got a fridge that's out in the, you know, in the garage that you're not using, go ahead, go for it. Right. Oh, and it's terrible. I shouldn't plug somebody else, but there's a guy on Facebook. I'm going to do a terrible job. He's, he's a gentleman who's, he's done some really cool videos. I love him. He does, he does really weird stuff where he like, he's dipped it in like butter and cheese and different things and aged him for long, crazy periods of time. And it's really, he's fully honest when things go horribly (laughs) wrong. But anyhow, so yeah, it's hard to find it in some of your larger stores. You're going to find it in your smaller uh, retail situations. And um, yeah. So I do, I will tell this if for people that think they want to do it themselves, um, like if you go to a lot of your big box stores, you can get a lot of boneless cuts there. I usually recommend if you're going to do it, try to do a bone in product to dry age, because of course, when you go to cut it, once it's, once you're done aging it, um, that bone kind of acts as a barrier, if you will. So that's, you're like, well, I'm going to cut that off anyway. So keep it on there, protect that surface. So you don't lose quite as much moisture and things like that. So yeah. we always tell people to, if you're going to do dry aging at home, which looks like how about it, man, um, keep it refrigeration, right? Dry. You really, you want to, you know, again, you want dry periods. You want to make sure it's not, I joked when I said you could put it in your garage refrigerator, but making sure that it's uh, not going to get moldy. You're not going to get too much uh, moisture is uh, is always going to be pretty, pretty critical to that. But yeah, I would say use bone in product if you can, because that way you won't lose quite as much product. If you use boneless, you're going to lose so much weight on the end of that. By the end of it, you're like, okay. And I have one tiny little strip of meat that I get to eat after 60 days or whatever. So yeah. Yeah. How does our beef get from the processor to the grocery store and maintain freshness? I know it's a big concern for a lot of people that their beef is never frozen or only refrigerated. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, sure. I mean, so in any of your larger, any of your plants, I mean, um, temperature is always something that we're monitoring. And the reason being is, um, as we talked about in class, as you don't want to be in your danger zone. So, but you don't want to ever get product above 40 degrees, kind of from 40 to 140 degrees is, is just that whole temperature range we want to stay out of because that's when microorganisms can really enjoy themselves. Um, and so any of your facilities are going to have refrigerated trucks to move product around each one is plant dependent, but usually they have a temperature on that product when it leaves and they'll, and then whenever it gets received in another facility, they'll, they'll temp it as well to make sure that it stayed under, you know, within the temperature range that they want. 
temperature monitoring is, is huge within the meat and food industry. Not just, I should say, yeah, not just the, the meat industry, but the food industry as well, because that's one of our best lines of defense, right? To try and make sure that we keep product is, uh, as you mentioned, safe, right? And, and for, or which the common person would say fresh. A scientist is going to say safe, but they're, they're like fresh, right? And so, yeah, we have all kinds of different technologies, like temperature monitors that will actually go with the meat and things like that. Uh, one of the things from a food safety standpoint, because we have, we use um, what's called the HACCP system for food safety here in the U.S., which is hazard analysis, critical control points. So that whole system revolves around being proactive, right? And and basically focusing your energy on where you can impart the biggest um, control to your product. And so temperature is always going to be our important one. So for fresh product, we constantly are monitoring temperature. And so uh, but that's probably the biggest thing is making sure, again, we have that temperature control all the way throughout. And that's going to help keep your product as fresh as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I know that we have a section about misconceptions a little bit later on, but I want to sure. kind of talk about one now then. Sure. So I've seen on social media, there will be people that say, oh, well, all beef is frozen. All beef is frozen <laughs> at least one point. So would you say that that's not no, true? No, then? no, that's yeah. not true. No, I mean, uh, you can't. I mean, if it comes from a frozen section, I would hope you'd expect it to be frozen. <laughs> but no, no, that's actually not accurate. Um, now, as far as how long it, or how old it is, I should say, how long the aging has been, it actually varies. We did. Um, oh, this is terrible that I can't. I'm not going to be able to quote it perfectly. So all my colleagues, if you listen to this, I'm sorry. Uh, but we did an audit there a couple of years. And I say a couple of years, like 10 years ago. The university that was in charge kind of went across the country and picked some um, major or some retailers. And then they backtracked. So like the, the steak, basically when they bought a steak, uh, supermarket A, right? When was it actually harvested? And the range was really not great. I mean, we had steaks that were anywhere from three days old to like 26 days old. And so for the most part, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was about 10 to 14 days was kind of the average. And so I th- that was several years ago, though, the last time that they, they did that audit. And I don't know if we've done it recently. I can't. I don't recall us doing it recently. Um, and I say, when I say we, I mean like the meat science community. Yeah. Um, and so I know that that was kind of eye opening for some folks on the, the retail side of things to be like, okay, because the palatability expectancy of a three day old steak versus a 21 or 28 day old steak is very different. As I mentioned, you've allowed enzymes to break things down. You've got more flavor, blah, 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 you know, and to think that somebody would get the same eating experience from a three day old steak is just <laughs> not yeah. right. So I know we have made strides as an industry to try and reduce that. I remember that was a big issue, like I said, several years ago. But if you're seeing it as fresh meat there, if you went frozen and then fresh, uh, you get some color deterioration there and stuff like that. So you, it's not going to be ideal. And then I know we talked a little bit about this earlier when we talked about marbling, but mm-hmm. if someone is looking for high quality beef in the grocery store, what qualities should they look for in the beef? Sure. Um, you know, one of the ones, it's so funny, it's so important to our eyes and it's actually very little importance to our actual palatability and that's color. We know color is the most impactful thing at the point of purchase and actually color has very little to do with what you eat. What, what It doesn't translate into those palatability factors all that much for beef. If, if we're talking about pork, that's a different discussion. Okay. Yeah. For beef. I want to make sure I'm clear on that one. And so not, not that I'm like, ignore our color. That's, <laughs> no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying if one is like a little bit darker than the other, don't think that it's like suddenly garbage. But they always, yeah, go for that, the marbling. And knowing the names of the steaks is sometimes such a big one. Because I'll tell you right now, if it has the word round in it, don't buy that as a steak. They're terrible. So the round is actually the hind portion of the carcass. And in general, they fat, lysex species will fatten from front to rear. So it's the last place for fat to deposit. So, okay, it's leaner already. Then those are muscles that are locomotive. They had to move that animal around. So they tend to be a little tougher for that perspective. And I just, it's always funny. Eye around steak. People will buy the heck out of eye around steaks. I think just because it has the word steak in the name. And then they see the price tag and they're like, that looks wonderful. I bet it'll taste delicious. And the Iron steak is like the worst steak. It is like the bane of my existence. I kid you not. The number of times we were like, I got this steak and it wasn't very good. I'm like, what was it called? It was the eye of round and it looked so nice because it looks really lean. So people are like, I'm being really good, right? I'm going to have this really lean steak. And I'm like, yeah, it's it was cheap for a reason. Yeah. There's a reason why it's cheap. So. And this is a great example. If you, The other thing, too, is an eye around just portions really pretty. It's really nice and circular. And so I've had people that thought the eye around steak was a tenderloin steak. And I'm like, no. Uh, you can look at the texture as well. The texture on, on a tenderloin is, is really smooth. That's not to say you have to buy a super high-end steak. 
Tenderloins are always going to be your most expensive, generally price per pound. I'm actually not a huge tenderloin fan because uh, the, the texture is great. I love the texture, but they sometimes don't marble as nicely. So you don't have as much flavor there. I'm actually a much bigger fan of the ribeye. Um, to me, I love when it's got the really nice cap that's on top of that. I just tell people the name is this called the spinalis, but we'll just call it the rib cap. Um, that is like, if you know a meat person, that's the, like that. They If they say they don't like that muscle, they're not a meat person. I don't care who they are. So that's why I always like ribeyes. And actually, I'll tell you one that's kind of a sleeper is actually one called the chuck eye. Mm-hmm. So the chuck eye, it's literally the exact same muscles that are in a ribeye. It's just taken a few inches further forward. And so you can get a chuck eye. Which, so, I mean, we're talking like in a beef carcass, those two cut a ribeye and a chuck eye are literally cut right next to each other. And it's the exact same muscles. And if not, the proportion of the muscles is a little bit different in their size as you move, like I said, as you're moving towards the front. But um, you can get it for like a lot less. So that's my sleeper one. I always say, I'm like, if you can find a check eye, go for it. Because not only do you have, you have a couple different muscles there. They marble and it really pretty. Um, and they just have really good flavor and texture and stuff like that. Um, the other one then is the sirloin is another one, which that one is actually a little bit further back. So, but the sirloin is one that tends to be very flavorful. It doesn't have as much fat in it, but it is very flavorful and is as a whole cut, I should say. There's obviously some variations with it, but, but that's actually one as well where you can get, um, first of all, there's a lot of different ways you can cut the sirloin. So you can get a little, lot of different portion options. Mm-hmm. So you can get a sirloin steak that's only six ounces. If that's what you're looking for, you can get one that's 16 ounces, you know, and they're all sirloin. They're not lying. It's just there's a lot of different ways you can cut that steak or cut that whole piece. And so it tends to be fairly flavorful. And again, it won't break the bank. So those are my things. So when I go again, I say know your cuts before you're going to buy is, I guess, my biggest thing there. It's easy to go after things like a tenderloin or a porterhouse or T-bone or something like that. And those are they're still good steaks. Your likelihood of being happy with them is pretty high. But um, also just knowing which steaks to stay away from is one yeah. of the things I tell people. Don't get anything out of the round. Don't yeah. do it. It's just not worth it. Yeah. My my favorite's the chuck eye. And then I also like the Denver steak that they have at the butcher block. Yes. Too. The Denver. It, so that there's a couple different cuts. Like the Denver's one. The flat iron's another one. Those are muscles that for the longest time, we, we use them in chuck. They're, they're muscles that are part of a chuck roast. When you think about like a pot roast, a chuck roast, those muscles are in there, a lot of them. And um, for the longest time, we wouldn't kind of dissect out those muscles because you're like, well, we'll just make it into a roast. Um, and now that people want a little bit more of those faster items or they can, and so they want those steaks, they want some easier, you know, more user-friendly ones. And yeah, I love the Denver. The Denver will marble beautifully. It's just hard to find, yeah. but it's a really good steak. It comes from underneath the the shoulder blade and um, it's, it's, I love the Denver. It's got, it's got the, it looks like a New York strip. A Denver that's cut properly should look like a New York strip. It's a longer, little thinner or narrower I should say but it marbles beautifully usually and I yeah I'm a fan of that one I like that (laughs) yeah should someone that worries about how their beef is raised be concerned about buying their beef from the grocery store versus from a farmer's market or direct to consumer I'm going to defend the beef industry as a whole, quite frankly, because again, I think there's a lot of negative conceptions that go out there. Like people are like, oh, your meat's full of antibiotics. That's not accurate. Antibiotics are not a lot. We have, you know, when we screen things, if there's any antibiotics there, the whole thing has to be tossed. Um, we keep copious amounts of records to make sure that an animal that was ever given an antibiotic for whatever reason, got sick, got hurt, whatever it may be, um, that they don't go into the food chain for X amount of time until that antibiotic has left their system. And, 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 and hormones, you know, I'm gonna, not going to go into that whole discussion. <laughs> Because uh, there, there's all kinds of things where people, there, there's a negative connotation towards production agriculture. In case you're wondering about antibiotics or hormones, we talked about that in last week's episode. Sure, okay, too, yeah. So. Yeah, I got on it. Yes, yeah. exactly. So um, so there's a lot of negative connotation that comes with that. And and that's it, you can sit here and tell somebody the science until you're blue in the face or try to break it down as easy as you can. And they're still, you know what? No, I don't think that's right. My heart still tells me that's not correct. So I guess to answer your question is all, I, I will defend the, the beef produced in this country. <laughs> With my whole, with all my my efforts, if I can, because I truly believe that as an industry, we do a great job. Um, now, I'm sure some people sitting out there are like, well, you're horribly biased. And yeah, I am in a way. I, but I have also been the person that I have worked in these plants. I have been to these plants. I have worked with these in this industry for over 20, 20 plus years. And so it's like, you know, until you have actually walked in the shoes, then it's hard to cast stones at that one. So I do fully, fully back where the beef industry is at from a, from a safety of the product, from the composition of the product as well. Again, going back to what you mentioned as far as farm, farm raised and all that. And, and at the same time, I fully support people who are small processors or small producers. They want to sell directly to their customers. That's a great feeling. There's something to be said for that. When it's something you produce yourself and you're handing that to your customer and that customer can look you in the eye and know, you know what, Bonnie made this for me. And I can, you know, it it has a totally different experience. We talk about, we eat with our eyes. I use that one a lot, but we eat with our hearts a lot as well. 
And when you have that emotional connection, that, that, that feeling of security in that respect, even though I could sit here and tell you, you know what, that, that steak you got from the farmer's market and the one you picked up from Kroger, they are the same, you know, compositionally, they are the same. It doesn't matter. And I'm not ripping on anybody because I'll actually do this myself. I think you may have, I probably mentioned it several times. I'm like, I have a couple of chickens. So I have my own eggs, right? I recently made pasta with that eggs. I have never tasted pasta that tastes so delicious in my life. It was mm-hmm. homemade pasta that I made. I fed it to my family. I have two little girls who sat there and gobbled up every bit of it. I was like almost in tears because I was so happy about this. My eating experience with that was so phenomenal. It was ridiculous because those were my eggs. That was my pasta. And that's what I was putting in my children's mouths that night. Do I know that if you probably tested my pasta versus the stuff that you bought at the store, probably about the same, but it's the feeling that you get to go with it. I have a garden as well. I, you know, I, I, I bring in my own fruits and vegetables and, um, the one that is my, my husband and I have uh, grapevines that came from his mom who came and her vines came from his grandpa's house. So these are like generational grapevines that we have our house. The grape juice that then I make with that and the grape jelly that I make with that is better than anything I've ever had in my entire life. Now, again, compositionally, as the scientist in me knows that that's not accurate, Stacey, but we eat with our hearts. And so that's where, again, when people are like, well, I just feel better about buying it from my neighbor, then you buy that from your neighbor. That's wonderful. Support them. Do that. That's awesome. Where I take issues when you start criticizing the mass produced stuff. A, some people don't have a neighbor (laughs) that they can buy that stuff. So to make them feel worse about themselves because they don't have that. I don't think that's right. And B, quite frankly, that's more expensive sometimes. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's more expensive and that's okay. I'm not saying yeah. that's a bad thing, but there are some people who can't afford that. And to make them feel guilty about the things that they're purchasing to feed their families is not right either. And again, last but not least, I do defend the actions, or the, the, the overall, the beef industry to say that we do a pretty darn good job. So are there things that have probably slipped through the cracks at different times throughout history? Well, yeah. Give me an industry that that hasn't happened in. So yeah, when somebody says that they're, they are really concerned about where they're buying, things from and stuff like that. I always try to like, I don't want to say console, but at the same time, like defend, yeah, defend um, kind of mass produced product. But at the same time, I always try to say it, but if this is really important to you and you want to be able to buy from so-and-so go ahead and do it. Don't feel like you're, that there's anything wrong with it. There's not. Yeah. If you're listening to all of this and you're like, oh, well, maybe I just want to learn a little bit more about how our beef is raised or you do decide to buy from your neighbors. There are also people that post on Instagram all the time, even if you're not buying from them, mm-hmm. they show the day-to-day lives that they they have going on about their on their farm about feeding their cattle and things like that which i think is just interesting to watch in general you know <laughs> some are pretty yeah. darn funny yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. i just like them <laughs> yeah yeah i i watch all of them but i'm a college student so i can't i can't afford to buy, <laughs> you have a buy all that yeah, yeah. but mm-hmm. it's, it's still interesting to look at if that's something that you're interested in learning more about too and and there you know yeah i've seen there's a guy that does a dairy a bunch of dairy ones he's hilarious um but at the same time like you you know, they're, they're really realistic. And, and so many times people that are big livestock producers kind of get painted out as like these, these people that don't care and they beat their animals and they just don't. And it's like, that is so far yeah. from the truth. It's not even funny. And so, yeah, it's, it, I do recommend people watch some of those. Now there's some people that I'm like, okay, I don't necessarily agree with what you're doing. Yeah. But I'm like, you know what? Have fun with it. Whatever. That has been one where even long before I was sitting in your position, when I was a kid, I call you a kid. <laughs> um, but you know, back when I was a college student, it was like, we, agriculture was late to the game and telling our story. And I think that just kind of comes with the, the people that are in agriculture. Yeah. We tend to not be the ones that like toot our own horn and tell our own story. And so we were pretty late to the game. But at the same time, now you just have a lot of people that are telling their story. And I think that's great. I think that's wonderful. We need to remember that at the end of the day, we're all trying to feed people, right? Yeah. And we're all trying to, to have that connection to, to our food, if you will. So moving into the next mm-hmm. section of our podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about misconceptions. No, oh, what my favorite. Yeah, what is a common misconception that you see in the industry as a meat scientist? Where it's uh, you know meat and animal products are bad for you and bad in your diet, and and I know that's not accurate. A lot of that data that's there and a lot of the claims that get made with that are, are inaccurate. No, not I'm not saying every person should be on the same diet. That's the other thing too. With that is the the human diet is very complex, or the human body is very complex, and it varies by all kinds of different things. And so to say that everybody should be on this diet is not right. And you even know this on my very first yeah. day of any of my meat science classes, I always tell my students, you can be a vegetarian or vegan in this class. I don't care. That's fine. That is your choice. 
choice. And I, and I vehemently de- defend that choice. Um, now there's sometimes I have some other students that don't, <laughs> they're like, Oh, those silly vegetarians. And I'm like, you know what? They all have their reasons. People have different reasons for doing that. And I think it's very important to be respectful of that. Now, where I do take issues when someone's there's like, I'm better because I don't eat meat or I don't eat than you because, and you're terrible because of this. I don't like those discussions. And I always like to approach those with, again, respect, listen, right? Where that person's coming from, how they got to that point. But I, again, as I tell my students in my class, I'm like, we're going to focus on the science. I'm not telling you you have to eat meat. I'm not telling you you don't have to eat meat. I'm not saying one is right or wrong. We're going to talk about the science of it. And unfortunately, again, in the world of human nutrition, we've had some various interpretations of that. And I don't necessarily think anybody's ever been like malicious or it's never done with the intent of of being malicious or something like that. It's just different interpretations. I think sometimes the data and that has sometimes led to these quote these different trends of what we should quote unquote or shouldn't be doing. And so that one gets me to where and again, I'm not going to claim to be a dietitian or, or a human nutritionist. I'm not. I am a biologist in that I'm an animal scientist. And so I can sit there and be like, wait a minute. I feel like maybe we overstepped there. So that's one. So I know I gave you really generic misconceptions on the diet side. So now we're going to cover the last section of the podcast where audience members can submit questions that they have about oh. about anything in agriculture in general, but oh. it's specific to, to our topic today. I will do my best. Um, so the first question is, someone asks, can the diet of the cow affect the taste and outcome of the meat? Yeah, yep, that's possible. Again, going back to the grass-fed and things like that, if you've got particular uh, flavor compounds and things like that in the diet, it's possible. Not as much as like for chickens and particularly pork, it's a bigger influence from diet to meat. Um, But beef, of course, have that rumen, right? So that rumen digests that quite a bit. And so it kind of synthesizes or, you know, basically filters out some of those things. Like you take a pig, they're not a ruminant. So basically from that's that's the digestive system. So basically their digestive system, what you feed them is what they're going to deposit. In beef, because they kind of have that rumen, which is again, a very dynamic uh, digestive system, um, they will break down food components differently. And so you don't get quite it's not quite a one-to-one like you do with the other species. So you can have some differences. And again, probably a great example is the one we already discussed, which is grain versus grass-fed. And again, that grass-fed tends to be a little bit more metallic, a little bit more possibly gamey, depending on how you want to look at it. And that really is just because usually it's because it has less fat to it. And again, those high forage diets tend to have a slightly different flavor to the to the, the fat component or the, the flavor compounds that are deposited in them in the meat. So so yes. Let's say you had two that were grain fed and it's like, well, one was given barley and one was given corn. Should I expect a big difference? Probably not. Right. Um, but again, when you're talking completely different feeding systems like grass and, and grain, yeah, you should expect some flavor differences. I'm not going to say good or bad. I'm going to say that they're different. Yeah. yeah. Our second question. <laughs> what happens to the other parts of the beef that we do not eat as consumers? Oh, great question. Yeah. So um, we like to say that we use everything. Right. And so we do. We try to get I mean, at the end of the day, you're trying to get as much use out of that carcass as you possibly can. So obviously the hide goes to leather production. Um, oh, various bones and things like that can go to um, different rendering and things like that. Like you get gelatin is actually extracted out of a lot of bones and things like that, because uh, gelatin is essentially collagen, that, that which is a protein that we get out of them. They go into all kinds of different byproducts of like everything from like aspirins to plastics and all kinds of different things. So everything has a value. And quite frankly, there's some cuts here that we don't consume much that other countries do. Um, there's a lot of the stuff that we would call off-all products. So like organs and, and tendons and things like that, that as Americans, we're like, you know, thank you. But, uh, you know, take it to Asia and they're like, oh my goodness, yes, we'll take all of that. So so we export a great deal and, and we'll export a lot of that, but we try to get use out of every single thing. And of course, we always have what's referred to as rendering. And so rendering is usually where we're taking, again, a lot of piece, people's pieces that don't get used um, or that you wouldn't make it into a retail case. Let's put it that way. And they can, again, get cooked and processed and things like that to be able to extract out various components to be able to use for different things. And so, um, yeah, we try to use every piece will be used for something. For our final question, what is one thing that you wish consumers knew about where their food comes from? I just want people to appreciate where their food comes from. I mean, it, it, 
this is one where I'll say the pandemic for all the horribleness yeah. <laughs> of that whole situation. You saw people suddenly realizing like, oh, wait, my, my grocery store isn't always going to be stocked. Like, what what is this? Um, and that was, I think, the first time some people got like a little bit more invent- or a little more concerned or at least took a more vested interest in where their food was coming from. And so I think that's really where I'm at. I just I don't care what people eat. I, you know, what I mean, that sounds bad. I'm like eat what makes you happy. Eat with your heart. Eat with whatever. But appreciate that it's there and that somebody put put a great deal of effort to get it there. Not one, several people put a great deal of effort to get it there from the farmer that produced it to the, the farmer that from the farmer that produced the grain to the farmer that raised the animal to the processor that made it into meat for you to the delivery person who moved that animal around all those places to the retail person who put it out on the case for you to be able to purchase it. it there's so many phases to our food production system and it is so easy to take it for granted. We all do it. And at the same time, when you're on the agriculture, culture side, it's it's painful at times when you hear, see some of the social media and stuff like that, where they're like, this is terrible. Those farmers are gouging us on this or, you know, so-and-so's, but this, this group of people is bad because of that. And it's like, there's so many facets to this industry. And the vast majority of people that are in the agriculture industry do it out of sheer love and passion for what they're doing. And um, and so I think that's one of the biggest things. If I could have, if everybody could just appreciate, I'm not saying they got to start growing their own food. Yeah. I'm not saying they need to, you know, go out picketing and, or whatever, but just to start appreciating, show that appreciation and, and understand that, you know what, if I raise 5,000 cows or five cows, I'm still part of the U.S. agriculture industry. And I, I deserve some respect for that. Please give me some respect for that. And, 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 and you know, on the, vice, and on the flip side as well of respecting the consumer and things like that. So, yeah. So I think just appreciating where your food came from. And I truly do think, honestly, in the last 15 to 20 years, we have seen more of that um, as kind of the organic movement has come around, grass fed, nap, all the different claims. As those things have rolled around so much more, what the, every single one of those is an indicator of people's starting to care about their food, which I think has always been the silver lining to me. So that's why I try not to take that stuff too personally. Being a production agriculture person, when people are like, oh, production ag is terrible. I'm like, okay, at least we're having a conversation now. I don't agree with you, but we can have a conversation about it and that's fine. So I think just a, yeah, overall, just appreciation of everything. And, and again, even with our own, our own industry, as I mentioned, I think a while, a while ago in my rambling about, you know, agri- our producers under having an appreciation for our, our processors. That's a hard sell sometimes to, to, to realize, well, they, at the end of the day, you can raise all the livestock you want. If you don't have them ready to kill it, cut it. <laughs> you got a bunch of pets. You're out of luck. <laughs> the best luck to you. So, you know, having appreciation, I think within our industry, and that's, that's tougher than people realize too, because um, agriculture is such a big industry. You know, when you really think about it, I mean, it goes from row crops to, again, to livestock to just so many different commodities and things like that. And so um, it's, again, hard to to see that appreciation. And just, again, I'm not saying we have to love all everybody, but at least see things from other people's perspectives at times. Well, thank you for joining our episode today. And I appreciate you being able to come in person and take some time out of your day to sure. be a guest on Unearthing Agriculture. Yeah. And apparently book me for a future one as well, yeah. <laughs> as, as you already mentioned. But yeah. no, you're very welcome. I hope everybody found something in there that was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Unearthing Agriculture. If you liked this episode, go ahead and follow us on Spotify and leave a rating. Next week's episode will start to cover the poultry industry, so don't forget that you can submit your questions right here on Spotify on the episode link, or you can find the link in our Instagram page to submit an anonymous question. Follow along with our Instagram page to keep up with when episodes drop and more behind the scenes. Thank you, and I'll see you again next week. 